Let me begin uh, our first of three teachings for Advent. And we're going to consider mercy, hope, and peace in many respects. Let's explain why that is the themes of the next two weeks. Mercy this week, hope next week, and then peace the third week. Um, I'm just going to pray. And would you just bow your heads and trust the Lord to speak to you through God's word. Father, I pray today that your word would open up to us all and that by your spirit you would speak in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that there would be hearts receptive to your word too so that, Lord, your word can do what it's supposed to. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let me just move this a little bit so I don't feel caged in. So Advent's uh, an opportunity to prepare our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth. I said that at the beginning of the service. It's a time marked with remembrance for all God has done and it's anticipation of all he is going to do. We think in the first advent of Jesus that, as that was prophesied, the second advent of Jesus is also going to be completed and fulfilled. So no matter what you're feeling during this season, you can find rest and reassurance in the gift of Emmanuel, who is God with us. Now, many sermons during this season will think about the hope, peace, love and joy found in Jesus' birth. There won't be many that will consider the subject of mercy, and particularly how that relates to the faith of the believer. See, at the heartbeat of the gospel, at the heartbeat of the Christmas story is the mercy of God. And that's where I want to begin this week's teaching. This week we'll be asking, do you know the tender mercy of God? Next week, Glenn will ask, if you're living in the land or the, underneath the shadow of death or darkness, or are you in the light of Jesus' blessing and presence? And then the third week we'll look at the question, are your feet on the path of peace? So we want to instill in you mercy, understanding of that this week, and the faith that's required to benefit from that. Next week, Glenn will look about lifting you up from the shadows of your life, whatever you're under. And then we'll look, about, look at something that's very current and necessary. The more I pastor, the more people are suffering with anxiety and depression, particularly post-COVID. I want to ask you the question, are you in week three on the path of peace? But this week, do you know the tender mercy of God? It's important before we consider this question that we roll it a little bit deeper in the text. But let me just highlight the area of the text we're going to read from because we'll read into different parts of Luke chapter 1, the key passage within that chapter. The key passage is what the NIV calls Zechariah's song. It can be a prophetic prayer, however you want to label it. Zechariah speaks under the unction of the Spirit. And we're going to read that now. And then I will dip into other parts of Luke 1 and different parts of the scriptures as we unpack the idea of God's tender mercy and the faith that's required to benefit from that which comes from heaven. So in Luke 1 verse 67, it says, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And then down into 76, verse 76 onwards says, And you, my child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High, 
For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way before him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation. Can I just pause there and say the word knowledge? Commentators agree as the experience of salvation. It's not just the head knowledge. Through the forgiveness of sins, so the forgiveness of sins should lead to an experience. Let me read on. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Do you know the tender mercy of God? Let's roll back and have a think about the context of what's going on here before we explore that mercy a little bit more. Zechariah's given worship observations in the temple. He's burnt incense. He's done his priestly lot. He's, he's turned up and burned up and he's ministered. And in that place of ministry, if you jump up to verse 13 in chapter 1, there's an angel who comes to Zechariah and Zechariah's gripped with fear. Verse 13 says, but the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. How many of us would like that kind of heavenly announcement and every one of our prayers that go before heaven. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you and many will receive, will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah's response I've highlighted in another colour on my notes. Zechariah says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. I'm going to stop there. What we have here in this text, if you were to read earlier on, it says that they were righteous. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous. Jewish societal righteousness stated that performance was important. How well you did righteously according to the law was important before Jesus came. But we're noticing a shift in the gospel here from performance-centered worship to God-dependent lifestyle. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth, the Bible describes them as blameless. What a label. What a label, blameless. But then Zechariah is in this place as a blameless man. God is showing him that he's still without what he needs to birth what God wants to bring into the future. And I would say as we reflect on this passage as believers in this room, there's people in this room that are good people. They live well, they perform well at work, they're good to their kids, they're good in their marriage, they're very good at serving in the local church. I include myself in this, by the way, I'm not getting at anyone. But are we a people who understand the economy of heaven? I'll come back to that in different language related to faith. Because it's clear from the text that because Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't know the economy of heaven, they were unable to birth the future that God had for them. They didn't understand what it was to be people of faith. They understood what it was to be people of works. They understood what it was to live well, but they didn't understand how to birth by faith. 
The, the season we live in, I'm thankful to the Lord, is a season of grace. I read that in Daniel's text that I shared with him, his verse. A season where God gives unmerited favor. A season where we just have to believe and therefore we speak. And God does the rest. It's a good time to be alive. It's a good, it's a good dispensation to live in. But Zechariah, what confuses me a little as I study this passage, and I have in many, many texts and commentaries, Zechariah asks for a sign. He, he, he says, how can I be sure of this? Now, this man who is blameless, this man whose wife is good and he is good, doesn't appear on first reading to be doing anything wrong. But the angel is offended and he says to him, I stand in the presence of God. That's where I've come from. I've come from the atmosphere of heaven. I've come from the place where miracles flow from. I've come from a place of limitless ability. And I'm now on earth and you're limiting what God can do. It looks on first reading as though Zachariah is just saying, come on, give me a sign that I know this is the Lord. I mean, there's a precedent in the Old Testament. Abraham asked for a sign in Genesis 15. Gideon asked for a sign. Do you remember the fleece? Judges 6. Hezekiah asked for a sign. 2 Kings 20. Ahaz asked for signs. Isaiah 7, 11. Here's a sign. A virgin shall conceive, Isaiah said. And in 120, we read in that text in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 20, we read that the Lord, according to his grace, gives Zechariah a sign. He closes his mouth. So he answers his request. Zechariah didn't pray in faith. He prayed in unbelief. I think this is, this is a challenge to us. How many of our prayers are prayed in unbelief? Or human thinking and not based on God's word. He prays in unbelief. And the sign is given. Within that sign is a, a rebuke about Zechariah's unbelief. His mouth is closed. The sign in many respects delays the revelation of the miracle that's coming until it comes to pass. Let me read that phrase again just in case you missed it. The sign of Zechariah's dumbness delays any revelation of the miracle until it comes to pass. In other words, because he has operated in the flesh and not by the spirit... He is unable to speak about the good things that God is about to do. Now think about that for a minute. There are many in this room who are good people, who live well, who perform well in every area. You might be like Zachariah and Elizabeth, righteous, even by the law, some of you. But what God requires of us in these days is to be a people of faith who believe, the Bible says, and therefore speak. Did you read that in the scriptures? I believe and therefore I speak. You see, what we have here, and I saw as I was praying for you guys in the, mirror, minute, in, in the, in the ministry prayer, was Zechariah writing on a tablet. Now we're all used to that, aren't we? Or phone or text. We communicate on social media. We have a little tweets. Snapchat, Instagram, I've never been, I don't even know what Snapchat is, it sounds like a serial. <laughs> My generation laughed, nobody else did. 
but we put our things out there. We become keyboard warriors. We're like Pharaoh first people. If Moses had have not been to the burning bush and gone to Pharaoh first, he'd have lacked the power and the anointing to complete what God had called him to, but he had to go to the bush. He had to be taken back to a place of real isolation, loneliness, despair, desert. And then when he encountered God, he believed and therefore spoke. This is what's going on here in this text. I'll read on so we understand a little bit more about what's going on. In verse 57 it says, When it was time for Elizabeth to have a baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown a great mercy, repeated phrase, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, as it was written, and they were going to name him after his father Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. My dad did this to me when I was a kid and I was born. Mum wanted to call me Nicholas, no laugh. You can imagine me and Nicholas. Nothing wrong with Nicholas. If there's any Nicholas, I do, forget, I do, do apologise. So you put your foot in it. It's not a common name, thankfully. For me, anyway, in this moment. <laughs> Saint, old Saint Nick. If you know any Nicholases, do apologise on my behalf and say, the pastor doesn't always sleep at enough hours. <laughs> but he was, he was going to call me Nicholas. But he said, my dad said, no. His name shall be Stephen. It's the same moment. Stephen means the one who wears the crown. This is prophetic. You know, I, I know Jonathan often joked because Jonathan is from the same root. Latin, Greek, Hebrew. He says he's God's gift, which is actually etymologically correct. It means grace of God or what God gave. What's happening here is... They're realigning with heaven. Initially, Zechariah spoke from his heart. He spoke from the flesh. And what they're doing in this moment, they're adjusting to heaven's perspective, heaven's economy, heaven's way of looking at things. Know his name shall be John. And then they went to the dad, and the dad made, made signs to the father. And the father was writing on tablets, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote on the tablet, his name is John. Verse 64, I love the first word. It says, immediately. Immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbours were filled with awe, and, they, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone heard and wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. I feel strongly about that with the Adiogan boys. When I was at the naming ceremony, the Nigerian naming ceremony for Fian, I just felt that weight as a shepherd over Fian's life. Again, this hard-to-articulate moment of what is God going to do with this kid? This is what they're saying. This sign of a closed mouth is then miraculously opened up when Zechariah shifts from God can't do it to God did it. And 
the Lord was waiting for that confession. And a bit like the Israelites, no Tannel preached on this recently, who went round and round in the wilderness another way. I think they could have got a bit more of a direct route, the Israelites, if only they'd believed. I think Zechariah, if he'd have absorbed the prophecy of the angel, could have gone around the hill country and said, the Lord is about to do something amazing. It's going to be amazing. I've heard an angel. He stood in the presence of God. I know what God's going to do. He's going to raise up a horn of salvation in Israel. He's going to change the world. But Zechariah was struck dumb because of his unbelief, because of his hardness of heart, because he was seeking in the flesh and not in the spirit. And the passage I've just read about here, it's as if he reverses out the cul-de-sac. The cul-de-sac of unbelief turns his car around to drive in the correct direction on the road of faith. Immediately his mouth was open and set free. Here we go again, the same question. Do you know the tender mercy of God? Why did you ask that question on the back of changing perspectives, changing to agree with God in heaven? Well, I'll start to answer that question like this. It's the mercy of God to rid us of unbelief. It's the mercy of God to rid us of our stinking thinking. It's the mercy of God to change the way we think. Because our thinking can be off. Did you know that? So often, that's why the Bible says to take every thought captive. Not just some thoughts, every thought. Because this is how the devil rides on the back of Christians' lives. He can, his kingdom, and he does have a kingdom, because Jesus mentions that when he's talking about Beelzebub, rides on the back of deception. His access point to the believer is here, usually. And if we don't change the way we think, we'll live out what he wants us to live out. He'll ride us like a Blackpool donkey, forgive the metaphor. But God is calling the church in these days to believe and therefore speak. God is calling the church to line up its thinking with him. See, God smiles on faith. Did you know that? Faith is the currency of heaven. It's how God can temper this idea of freedom of choice with obedience and consecration. It's like we, we, we want freedom. We don't want automatons. We want human beings living independent lives with choice, but yet yielded to God. And the only way God can accomplish that is if people would line up their thinking with the thinking of heaven, as revealed by his word. That's exemplified in the angel's visitation, but it's ultimately for you and me in here. I want to ask you a question which all of us need to answer. Where is your thinking off as regards to the text? Because to the degree that it's off, your life will live out that off stench. The word of God in our lives is transformative. It is powerful. It's sharper than any sword. It can divide the darkness from the light. It can take the devil's works away and replace it with heaven. So how is your faith doing? God smiles on faith. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can't please God through performance. You can only please him with faith. 
Faith also is the currency of salvation. Faith is the means by which heaven invades earth. If you want to see the miraculous in your life, if you want to see the supernatural in your life, be a person of faith. Often, you know, this, Greg Hassam said once, how soon the radical become the established. I remember that. Such a powerful phrase. You can start off on fire and then get mature. But God is calling people to be people of the flame, people who wait in the upper room till the flame comes to settle on them and then they speak. People who know their God, like Moses at the bush, and then speak to the pharaohs of this world. Do you know the Bible describes for the believer the possibility of an evil heart of unbelief? Did you know that? It is possible, it says that in Hebrews 3, to have an evil heart of unbelief if we turn away from the truth about Jesus and all he's brought. It is possible. Hebrews 3, 12. Faith's confession says, God can and God will. God can and God will. Why? Because he's said. Now, a lot of the people who operate in this world, and I don't want to get all quasi-magical and name it and claim it, but the reality is, People like the Wigglesworths of this world, they look strange, they look out of kilter because the majority of the church in history past has not lived this out to the max. Few people do. Few, few people grasp God's word, take him at his word, and believe for the impossible. We're so good at going so far and then saying, Lord, but my life is a bit like Daniel in the lion's den or the fiery furnace. And I, I, I believe this far, and you know what, Lord, I'm just going to suck my thumb now because it's just got a bit too hot in the kitchen and I want to get out. But God is calling the church to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and be people of faith. Because faith's confession says God can and he will because he's said. I think Zechariah would have been able to speak about the good things God was about to do. And I think many of the believers around him wouldn't have believed him. Even if he'd have done it right from the first point. This is the problem, you see. Faith divides the crowd. the mercy of God to rid us of all unbelief. It's the mercy of God to show kindness towards us and give us faith to believe, like I read in Daniel's promise, to see the future with hope, to believe for good things. Can I ask you a question? How's your faith doing for that? How's your mind? Because Repentance means changing the way you think in the Greek. And quite a lot of the things that we do, we repent of our sins at the beginning and then we allow Satan to clutter our thoughts with lies about ourselves and others and we start speaking out and living out those lies. And so we attack what is good and we ignore holding back what is bad because the filters have gone from, away from our life. We've lost all of our stability that's why the Bible says a double-minded person is unstable in all they do because we've not rooted in the truth. And the only way to cope with the storms of life like the anchor John spoke about over Dan's life is to be rooted in truth so that we live out by faith all that God wants us to do in spite of the storm around us. So how's your faith doing? It's the mercy of God to rid us of all unbelief. God smiles on faith. 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is the currency of salvation. It's also the means by which heaven invades earth. Do you know you can speak death or life with the tongue? Because what you say is what you believe usually, unless you're playing a game. And if our thinking is off, what we speak out will be off. And we have the power to lock up or loose. We have the power to release ourselves or we have the power to bind others. Did you know that? That's why James is quite strict on it. Echoing Proverbs 18, 21, he says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. You'll eat the fruit of what you say. You'll live out and experience what you speak out. We're made in the image of God, and when God created, he spoke. The old phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me, is not true. Words have power. Words can hurt. Words can destroy. James in James 3.10 says, we speak either blessings or curses. Do you know the ministry of Jesus was shut down because of the words of the community around him? The words of the Son of God... The works of the Son of God were closed down in Nazareth because of the speaking of people. He was unable to do any miracles amongst them because of the way they spoke about Jesus. This is the power that's in the tongue. We can either speak in faith or we speak in unbelief. Both come from the same source. James says, my brethren, this isn't, this isn't how it should be. This ain't not be so, but this is how it is. I would say, like with Zechariah, maybe this is the statement that God was making with the sign he put on his life. Maybe it's better to stay silent than to doubt. You think about Jericho. There was silence because if they'd have spoke out, they'd have hindered what God was about to do. Maybe God in his mercy knew that Zechariah could have potentially hindered what God was about to do. I don't know, that's for us to think on, maybe not nail our colours to. But God partners with faith. He doesn't partner with unbelief. God smiles on faith. Do you know we can speak against things which are good, not using the language of heaven? It's, it's rather like, you know, Glenn's a rugby chaplain. He can either partner in faith and be an encouraging voice with the boys on the pitch and the girls that maybe another person will take on. Or he can speak against them and be destructive with what he says. It's the difference, actually, when you start to work like this. You, you make a choice with your mouth. When you speak for what God thinks and how God speaks about a person, a place, an organization, a thing, when you align yourself with heaven, you start to be a part of God's construction crew. When you speak against or speak in a way that is distinct and different from the way God thinks, the way God speaks, we join Satan in his wrecking crew. And we, 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 to use the metaphor of Glenn in his chaplaincy, when you partner with God by faith, God allows you to join him on the pitch. When you speak against things in unbelief or negatively different to the way God thinks, you just position yourself in the stands. And have you ever seen a lot of people in the stands? Glenn will have seen it week on week when he's with the boys. There are people, I kid you not, I saw this when I went to watch oral rugby. I used to enjoy the rugby union. I've seen people with burgers this big criticising the winger. <laughs> Call 
yourself fat? Sorry, call yourself fast? I remember one guy criticizing a guy called Victor Obogu. Victor Obogu was a tremendously strong rugby player in the 90s. And this guy was like, give it to Victor. And he played for Bath. And then next minute, he's criticizing Victor, who's probably 17 stone of muscle, because he couldn't run as fast as the guy wanted him to with the burger in his mouth. Are you kidding me? I was stood there watching Victor, who was pummeling people and carrying the ball a lot further than he could, and he was criticizing him with the burger. You'll have seen this many times. The minute you speak against or different to the way the Lord is, you just become like that guy in the stands. God says, all right, I can't use you now. If you want to be a critic, there's plenty of them in the world. You'll just stand for the rest of your days observing what God does. But if you want to speak life and see the supernatural and speak positively about people and things and processes, then the Lord might have you on the pitch. I just want to close with this idea because I know I'm nearly done with time. And this is all I have time for, really. But you'll find this phrase, tender mercy of God, all the way through the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. Luke, 5, Luke 1, 54, Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, Titus 3, 4 to 6, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, and so on and so forth. I could list you a lot more. It's talking about... The nature of God. What am I talking about with those, those quotes of different scripture references? I'm talking about the Greek words for tender mercy. The tender mercy of God. What's interesting about tender mercy, Stephen, in the passage you've read, you've read let's remind ourselves of what you just read. Verse 78 reflecting on the coming of John the Baptist to prepare the way for the Lord because of that rising sun, Jesus. Picture in Isaiah 9, Malachi 4, the sun of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. It's an image of Jesus bringing light to a dark world. Because of the tender mercy of God by which that rising sun will come to us from heaven. What does it mean, the tender mercy of our God? This is, this is written... In the genitive case, what do you mean by that, Steve? Well, if you th- does anyone like cake in this room? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Let's have a DC group for cake eating. That's, uh, some, that's one I could definitely attend. I'm not, I'm not joking either. If you, do, if you do feel the anointing for cake, cake club, you know, somehow. We can fit Jesus in there, can't we, Glenn? <laughs> cake and coffee. <laughs> the tender mercy of God. The word tender mercy, the words tender mercy are genitive. It's like the, the phrase slice of cake. The slice of the cake is a part of the cake. The tender mercy of God is a slice of the nature of God. It's, it's inherent within him. The word tender, it's the same word that Jesus experiences at the grave of Lazarus. It's the Greek word splanka. It's, it's this, have you ever felt compassion here? It's different things hit different people. Sometimes it's your human emotions going with it because you just see someone and they're broken and you want to help. That's a good thing. God will be pleased with you. 
But what I'm talking about here is for the believer who's one spirit with the Lord, sometimes the Lord will move you with his compassion, which is his nature, for a situation to change a situation. Because the tender bit is that splanker, that guttural, heartfelt, groaning, I want to fix this. The mercy of God is beautiful. The mercy of God, when I study it carefully, speaks about God's kindness and goodwill to the miserable and afflicted, joined with a desire to relieve them. Let me say that again. The mercy of God in Scripture in the New Testament is about God's compassion storehouse team towards the miserable and afflicted, joined with a desire to relieve them. Now, there are many times in my journey where I've experienced something of a connection with the divine, where something of heaven and this slice of God was on me. You don't get it all the time, but if you're a prayerful person, it just sometimes rises up within you. I try to temper my visits to people with that unction because I know then something's going to happen. If I go on my own, something's not going to happen. But if I go in God, something's going to happen. And usually it does. So if I come by your house, it's because God sent me. Okay? God sent me to pray for you. The tender mercy of God, the splankatsumai, this splankan in the text, it's, it's here. I remember feeling that compassion. I didn't know Faye would be here, but when Lydia was poorly in hospital, I felt it here at the front, about this place on the carpet. I shot off to Manchester Children's Hospital. I leant over her with compassion. And the Lord, within a day, raised a girl up who was close to death. She left the hospital well. I felt the same compassion for Mark Grimes when he had never opened his eyes. He was really poorly. At the end of the bed, there were three doctors or three medical professionals with clipboards. And I asked the, what I perceived to be the doctor, what does he need from the Lord? And the doctor couldn't answer me because the doctor didn't have faith. And I said, well, what's the problem? Changed my language. They told me, and I just opened the disc and said, life. The baby went like this. Joe will confirm this. And his eyes opened for the first time and he turned to look at his dad. First look, isn't that the God design? The way the Lord did that, isn't that lovely? What God did there? Splanker, moving with the spirit, with compassion. You know that's true, don't you, Joe? Bless you. And we continue to pray for Mark. And we continue to pray for the afflicted. I remember a time when Simon was at the front. There was a whole row of people to be prayed for. Carol will testify that I prayed for him at least 20 minutes, maybe longer. Later after that, I didn't even know, I should know, I've known him all my life. He couldn't see before, he could see after. Splanker. What am I trying to say to him? I'm trying to draw attention to me. No, no, the compassion of God in us cares about your personal circumstances. He really cares. I'll tell you one more. I remember being on the streets, and I've told this story to others. The guy who was a heroin addict came out of a doorway, sickle down his top. And I went in for the hug on him against what is natural. I was moved with compassion. I knew I'd end up with sickle down me. I didn't even flinch at the fact that he might have sharps in his pockets. Following day, he was at a prophetic seminar. How many heroin addicts go to prophetic seminars? He sat on the back, weeping. 
He said, what have you done to me? So what do you mean, what have you done to me? He said, I've not had a bag of heroin this morning. It's the first time in 10 years. What's going on? I didn't pray for him. I just held him. Splanker. Compassion. The mercy of God. Listen, I'm not trying to point to me. These are, I can only talk about my experiences. The, the, the mercy of God is the nature of God. By which the sunrise from on high has visited us. What sent Jesus to this world? The compassion of God. The compassion of God, the kindness and goodwill of God towards the miserable and afflicted joined with a desire to relieve them. The church who lives by faith will be an arm of relief to those who need the mercy of God in our world. The more you align your thinking with heaven, the more the supernatural will break out on the earth. Because God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The nature of God is good. Did you know that? In the dedication of Solomon's temple, the first thing that's said when the dedication of the temple happened, the priest fell over because of the presence of God. Their declaration was, first thing out of their mouth, the Lord is good. The Lord's good. And so maybe even that will demolish your thinking that's going to, you know, maybe circumstances have burned you and somehow God has been caricatured as to being different to the way it is. God is good. And God is for you. And God is for this world. And the gospel is good news. And the church has the best thing that anyone could ever offer. Lottery ticket or eternal salvation, you're always going to give eternal salvation if you stood at that juncture between heaven and hell. You're never going to give them the 60 million euro, euro, euro millions. I've never bought one of those tickets. But you would always choose salvation. That is how rich a salvation we have. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3, he has begotten us in his mercy. He has begotten us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's his mercy that sent Jesus to relieve us from the effects of sin, sickness, Satan's power, darkness in this world, to give us hope for the future. Heaven invades earth in that moment. There are some mysteries. We don't always see the miraculous. Listen, my, my theology of healing's matured over time. It's dead simple. I pray for the sick. If they're healed, I praise God. I expect a miracle every time. If they don't get healed, then that's the Lord's business. There you go. That's my theology in a nutshell. I don't need to know anymore. I expect a miracle every time because it's his nature. If he doesn't give me a miracle, that's his business. Do you hear me? So let's pray. Let's believe the Lord to realign our thinking because you can speak against your own life. Did you know that? Let me recommend a book to you before I close. Blessing or Curse You Can Choose by Derek Prince. I've not read it in prep for this. I read it about 20 years ago. It changed my life. Shadows to Sunlight. Derek Prince's wife, he had a number of them because one of them died, then the other one died after him, after, before, after the first wife. She used to hate her legs. She looked at herself in the changing room once with what she perceived as fat legs as a teenage girl in high school, and she said, I hate my legs. It's in the book. Thereafter, she struggled with knee pain for the rest of the time until he prayed for her and broke that self-imposed curse. Now, that's not always the formula, but words are powerful. What are you saying about yourself? 
What are you saying about other people? I, listen, as a prophetic person, I know when people are praying for me. I also know when, it sounds paranoid this, but it's the truth. I know when other people are not saying nice things. That's why I get easily hurt. It's just there. But life and death are in the power of the tongue. Speak life, not death, and you'll enjoy the fruit of it. Speak hope, peace, joy, love, kindness, and we'll come into the fruit of heaven on earth. Amen. Father, thank you for this first Advent lesson. Thank you, Lord, that you teach us through Zechariah's life to believe and therefore speak. Help us to hold our tongue when we don't know or when we don't believe. But when we do believe truth, help us speak it out with boldness and faith. In Jesus' name. Amen.